really want to hear about this morning. But finally, I decided I'm going to do it by reading a compelling story that's in this book right here. Let's start with this. Caught in the quicksand. Caught in the quicksand is the name of the story. And uh, so listen to this, and then we'll go on from there. Victor Hugo gives the following impressive description of a death in the quicksand off certain coasts of Britain and Scotland. He says, It sometimes happens that a man, traveler, or fisherman walks on the beach at low tide, far from the bank, suddenly notices that for several minutes he has been walking with some difficulty. The strain beneath his feet is like pitch, his soles stick to it. It is sand no longer, it is glue. The beach is perfectly dry. But at every step he takes, as soon as he lifts his foot, the print which it leaves fills with water. The eye, however, has noticed no change. The immense strand is smooth and tranquil. All the sand has the same appearance. Nothing distinguishes the surface, which is solid, from that which is no longer so. The joyous little cloud of sand fleas continues to leap tumultuously over the wayfarer's feet. The man pursues his way, goes forward, and climbs to the land, endeavors to get near the upland. He's not anxious. Anxious about what? Only he feels somewhat as if the weight of his feet increases with every step he takes. Suddenly, he sinks in. He sinks in two or three inches. Decidedly, he's not on the right road. He stops to take his bearings. All at once, he looks at his feet. They have disappeared. The sand covers them. He draws them out of the sand. He will retrace his steps. He turns back. He sinks in deeper. The sand comes up to his ankles. He pulls himself out and throws himself to the left. The sand is halfway deep. He throws himself to the right. The sand comes up to his, his shin. Then he recognizes with unspeakable terror that he is caught in the quicksand. And that he has beneath his, and that he has beneath him the fearful medium, in which man can no more walk than a fish can swim. He throws off his load if he has one, lightens himself like a ship in distress. It is already too late. The sand is above his knees. He calls. He waves his hands, his hat, his handkerchief. The sand gains on him more and more. If the beach is deserted. If the land is too far off, if there is no help in sight, it's all over. He is condemned to that appalling burial, long, infallible, implacable, and impossible to slacken or to hasten, which endures for hours, which seizes you erect, free, and in full health, which draws you by the feet, which at every effort that you make, at every shout you utter, drags you a little deeper, sinking you slowly, into the earth, while you look upon the horizon, the sails of the ship, upon the sea, the birds flying and singing, the sunshine in the sky. Then the victim attempts to sit down, to lie down, to creep. Every movement he makes incurs him. He straightens up and he sinks in. He feels that he is being swallowed. He howls, he implores, he cries to the clouds, despairs. Behold, behold him waist deep in the sand. The sand reaches his breast. He is now only a bust. 
He raises his arms, utters furious groans, clutches the beach with his nails, would hold by that straw, leans upon his elbows to pull himself out of his soft sheath. Sobs frenziedly. The sand rises. The sand reaches his shoulders. The sand reaches his neck. The face alone is visible now. The mouth cries. The sand fills it. Silence. The eyes still gaze. The sand shuts them. Night. Now the forehead decreases a little. Air flutters above the sand. A hand comes to the surface at the beach, moves, shakes, and disappears. It is the earth drowning man. The earth filled with the ocean becomes a trap. It presents itself like a plane and opens like a wave. Could anything more graphically describe the progress of a young man from the first cup of wine to the last? So, you know, that, that's a really, to me, as I read that, uh, really gripping story. And uh, what I'd like to talk about this morning is what the Bible has to say about strong drink. And it's something that I've been thinking about for quite a while, um, several years actually. And uh, been studying it some. And as you remember, the last time I shared, I shared from 1 John chapter 2. And I spoke about the world and the influence it has on us. So a quick review of that message, if you remember partway through that message, I talked about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, how they're all part of the world, which is something that we need to be separate from as, as Christians. So in speaking about the lust of the flesh, I read a list in Galatians 5, verse 19 to 21. It was a list of things that described the flesh. And if you recall, drunkenness was in that list towards the end, and that, that list ended with, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we may say, you know, we're, we're not drunkards. You know, we're not drunkards here. And that's true. But drunkenness begins with that first sip. Likely, that first sip was in a, a social environment with friends. And then, in that social environment, many became entrapped, just like that man that was in the quicksand. They didn't realize that they were entrapped until it was too late. So, what does the Bible have to say about it? And actually, the Bible has quite a bit to say about it. Drinks with uh, any alcohol content can lead to the trap of alcoholism and drunkenness. We know that alcohol is a mind-impairing substance that affects not only the drinker, but it affects others that are around them. Alcohol has that effect, because it affects you, and then they need to respond differently than what you normally would. Alcohol is a cause of many other evil outbursts in life, including innocent death. You hear innocent people that are killed because of alcoholism. And every incident of drunkenness, alcoholism, whatever it is, it can be traced back to that first drink, that first sip that was taken. That, was, that, that first sip that was just tried because maybe you think it can't hurt you. 
maybe so-and-so does it and you know, he's okay. And then before we know it, we're, we're trapped. It's just like that, that plain sand that that man was walking on. Before he knew it, he was trapped. He was enslaved, or you, you become trapped and enslaved to a vice that, that we desperately want to get out of, like the man did. So I'd like to share a little bit from my personal family history. Personally, I don't have any experience with it, but um, my uncle was here recently, my mom's brother, and uh, he is a recovering alcoholic. He's been through Alcohol Anonymous, AA, and he, he, was, he was, and I guess you could almost say he is, because from what he described to me, he, he's battled alcohol for years. He's one of, he was someone that was caught in the quicksand of drink. He was, he was sinking, he was unable to get out. Only as he cried for help, there were several that were close enough to him to help him get out of this uh, trap of alcoholism. And he shared with me how when he was young, he was quiet and reserved in a group of people. And if you know him now, you would never guess that. But anyhow, he said when he was young, he was quiet and reserved. When he was with a group of people, and when he drank, it made him feel better. And he was—he said he became more outgoing. He was more fun to be around. And so, as he did that, you know, as he partied and he, he didn't live the best life, and as he partied, he got into more and more trouble, and he became an alcoholic. Um, but if you were to meet him today, he would testify how the Lord has changed him. And the joy of the Lord is really obvious in, in him. And Jesus, you can see that Jesus did more for him than what alcohol could ever do for him. Because the joy is really obvious. It's a, he's, he's really a, a special guy, and he's, a, he's someone that I look up to. And I, you know, I want to be like him. I don't want to be an alcoholic. He's a, he's a volunteer, and my ancestors are famous for their wine. If you research it, you'll find that one of the royal champagnes in England is volunteer wine. In fact, it was served at Prince Charles and Princess Diane's wedding meals. It was volunteer champagne. So winemaking, and it actually is because as I went back as I talked to my grandfather, Winemaking was part of my heritage, and, and they were good at it. My grandfather told me, be my mom's dad, he, he told me um, about his father's conversion, my great-grandfather, his conversion to Christianity. He said how he remembers how his father was known in the area to make the best wine around, but when he became a Christian, he remembers seeing his dad go down into the cellar and uncorking all the bottles, dumping them down the drain, and getting rid of all the wine that he had made. Because he knew what he had in the basement was it was a part of the world. And he was, and that this wine was not conducive to having a, a sound mind. So this morning I'd like to break the message into four parts. Non-alcoholic wine versus intoxicating wine in the Bible. 
what the Bible has to say about wine and questions we might have and how should we respond. So I want to begin, and hopefully you can follow along with my train of thought, what I've been thinking. There's a lot of ground actually to cover, trying to condense it down, but I'd like to begin by looking at the meaning of the word wine. Some would say that wine is wine, that it's all alcoholic, but I don't think that that's necessarily so. For example, is all drink water? And I think you would say, of course not. If I told you that I'll provide the drinks for an upcoming work day, you know without asking that when you opened up the cooler that you would find sodas and water or maybe some other type of, of uh, fruit juice or something like that. You wouldn't find a beer uh, in the cooler if I brought it to a work day. On the contrary, if you see a sign that says, don't drink and drive, you know that it means alcoholic beverages and not iced tea. It's, it's okay to go down the road drinking iced tea, but a, a beer in your hand is not okay. So just like the word drink can mean different things, so wine was used in the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament in referring to the drink of their day. It was used, wine was used a little bit generically. And we'll get into that then, but the context of how the word is used is it, so important. So here's, uh, I want to give several examples of non-alcoholic wine in the Bible. So let's begin by turning to Isaiah 65, verse 8. Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy it in all.
we can see how the word wine is it's clearly used in the Bible for non-alcoholic drinks. So next I'd like to look at how historically wine was, or wine slash grape juice, was made in many different ways, and it was still called wine. Then I'd like to look at the difference in the word wine in the Greek and in the Hebrew also. So as, as already pointed out, wine is referenced in the Bible as being non-alcoholic, and it's referred to as new wine in the unfermented state. Wine that was in the fermented stage was alcoholic and was able then to be stored for long periods of time. So the question that can be asked, is all stored wine alcoholic? And the answer is no. Uh, unfermented juice was also able to be stored for long periods of time. The ancients of old had ways that to preserve the grape juice besides fermenting, fermenting it into alcohol. They, they stored it other ways. So there's several ways that they did it. One way was to boil it down into a thick uh, consistency, much like we would make syrup or sorghum. They boil it down. And in this condensed state, it was more of a sweet syrupy state. And it was unable to be fermented, but it would store indefinitely much like like we store honey, how, how honey stores. When, when they were ready to use it, water was added to thin it down, and then they could drink it. Otherwise, it was simply used as a sweetener. An example of this kind of wine, if you look in uh, Song of Solomon, it briefly mentions it, where it says wine, uh, Song of Solomon's 5-1 is where, it, where it's found, but it says where uh, there was wine mixed with, with milk, or I, I think it was more of a grape molasses that was mixed with the milk as a sweetener. And you can still, from what I've read, you can still get this type of a drink in the Turkish or Middle Eastern countries today. Um, I haven't run across that, maybe Raven or Trish or Rosalind or some of you that live in the Middle East may have run into that, but from what I've read, that's still available in Middle Eastern countries. And this uh, great molasses, or it was called must, it was also put in wine skins and smoked for the extra flavor that it added. And in reference to that, if you want to turn to Psalms 119, uh, just a couple of pages back from where we were, 119, 8, verse 83, it says, For I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet do I not forget thy statutes. It's talking about a bottle in the smoke. And uh, remember that wine skins were their bottles of, of their day. They used wine skins. They didn't have glass bottles or something, you know, but, but they used wine skins. And <clears throat> Aristotle wrote that, and this is quoting him, the wine of Arcadia was so dried up in its skins by the smoke that you had to scrape it to drink. So, so they, they used this method of drying their, uh, and flavoring their, their uh, condensed uh, grape juice, I guess you'd call it, in, in their wine skins. They, they would smoke it, and then that would flavor it, and then they used that in their drinks. And that, it was actually a delicacy, or you call it a delicacy, but it was, uh, it was really good. 
The other ways that they extended the availability of grapes for later use was planter, plant late maturing grapes, as well as plant varieties that had a long shelf life. It'd be similar to how today orchards plant different apple varieties. And Arkansas, and Arkansas black would be probably one of the last apples we would pick today. And, uh, and also a Fuji apple, you're probably familiar with. It'll, it'll store extremely well. And it was the same way with grapes. That they, uh, they, they could do the same thing with grapes as far as extending their life or, or their availability. But then the grapes were also picked and they were dried into raisins, which were later reconstituted with water. And that was called raisin wine. And historians tell us that this non-alcoholic, this was non-alcoholic, and some Jews today still use this type of wine for their Passover wine. They use crushed raisins steeped in water, and then they press it, and then that's what's used for their um, for their Passover wine. Then they would also store their sweet wine in sealed containers for commercial or something called lactic fermenting, which is real similar to how we would uh, make sauerkraut today. So to assume that they made all wine, that all wine was alcoholic for the purpose of preservation is really not correct. Uh, stored wine was available in a non-alcoholic state also. So I want to take a look at the different meanings for the word wine in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They both uh, differentiate between sweet and alcoholic wine, as well as sometimes it can mean neither. So it can get really confusing. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words had at least two, and there, there's some other scattered words for wine, but I'm just going to mainly, the main ones are two words. In Hebrew, it's uh, yayin and arash, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing those exactly right, but yayin in Hebrew was used generically for either alcoholic or alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine, while tairash, or however you pronounce that, referred strictly to unfermented wine or grape juice. And it was somewhat the same in the New Testament. The Greek words for wine were oinos and glucos, just like the Hebrew words. Oinos was used for either alcoholic or non-alcoholic wines, where glucos referred to the new, sweet, unfermented wine. And you'll find that Whenever wine is spoken of as good for you, or in a positive way in scripture, it's generally referring to unfermented wine, unfermented fruit juice, whereas the opposite is true in reference to fermented and alcoholic wine. It's looked at more in a negative way. So when in doubt, if the wine could be interpreted either way, which can be. Sometimes it can, uh, wine can be interpreted either way. So when, when you're in doubt, look at the context and whether the wine is portrayed as in a positive way or in a negative way. 
And you'll find repeatedly in Scripture that unfermented wine is used as a symbol or a type of God's blessing, where fermented alcoholic wine is used symbolically as a symbol of God's wrath. So unfermented wine is used as a symbol or a type of God's blessing, where fermented alcoholic wine is used symbolically as a type of God's wrath. So what does the Bible have to say about wine? And I'll say, up, you know, I want to say up front here that the Bible doesn't come right out and say to the public in general, "Thou shalt not drink alcoholic wine," or "Thou shalt not drink alcoholic drinks," or say wine. Not in those words, at least. And I guess my goal is to more build a case that there's as much more condemning alcoholic wine than there is for it. sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, 
sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet and the hope of salvation. So we're, we're told here to be sober, and especially note how sober is contrasted with drunkenness. And what is drunkenness? It's when we drink in excess to the point of being physically and mentally impaired. It's kind of what, what was described there in, in Proverbs. Whereas consuming, you know, if you consume any amount of alcohol, you'll be less than sober. If you drink only moderately, then you're going to be moderately drunk. You know, police have this uh, device where they can breathalyze, or I'm not sure what it's called, but, but they can tell whether you're drunk or not by, by your breath, or if you have any, any amount of alcohol in your, in your body. To be sober means absolutely no alcohol. Now I'd like to uh, turn to 1 Peter 1.13. As believers, 
kings and priests. First uh, Peter two five to nine talks about that, and in Revelations one six it talks about that. And if you look at the Old Testament kings and priests, they were forbidden to drink wine or strong drinks. I'm not going to turn there, but that's in Proverbs thirty one four and five and Leviticus ten verses eight to ten. Uh, kings and priests said they were forbidden to drink wine or strong drinks. So why would it now change for us as as uh, kings and priests now? Remember how the Rechabites, uh, they were a group of people in the Old Testament. They were praised in Jeremiah 35 because they as a family didn't drink any wine. They, they, they were praised. Abstaining, they, they abstained but abstaining takes not only willpower, it takes self-denial, it takes self-control or temperance, which is taught all throughout the Bible. And we know that the Holy Spirit will help us in this area as it's one of his fruits. So I'd like to now touch on some of these questions that are often brought up. There, there's, there's questions that are brought up, typically, and probably... In your mind, you maybe already are thinking of what about this or what about that. So hopefully I'll be able to touch on maybe some of the things that you're thinking about. In John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, Jesus of all people turned water into wine. Was Jesus by this action promoting wine? So when you look at the Greek word there in John 2, the Greek word is oinos, the generic word for wine. So it could have been sweet, unalcoholic wine, or it could be alcoholic wine. I guess we have to choose on that. So one thing you'll notice in the story is that there's, there's no hint of drunkenness mentioned, even though obviously they had been drinking heavily, or else they invited too many people because they ran out of wine. One, one or the other. In verse 11, it says that the miracle was manifested. It was to manifest Jesus' glory. Would Jesus make a large amount of potentially dangerous drugs and manifest his glory? And furthermore, as our high priest and the king of kings, Jesus would, be, would he would have been violating Proverbs 31, 4, and 5 if he drank fermented wine. So for me, it's much harder to believe that Jesus made the wine alcohol than non-alcoholic. Some would say that Jesus did drink because he was accused of being a wine bibber, and he was accused of being clever. And, and that was by his enemies in Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19. I think it's rather ironic, though. But he was also accused of having a demon in John 10, verse 20 and 21. Do you believe that Jesus had a demon? And I think all of us would say, of course not. By Jesus' enemies voicing their derision and lies, they were kind of in a backhanded, ironic way, giving him a compliment. It was acknowledging that he did not drink. Just like they were acknowledging that he didn't have a demon 
Then why would, also, why would Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 tell a pastor or a leader to not drink if Jesus and his disciples drank? I don't think Paul would have told leaders not to drink if Jesus and his disciples drank. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, that's also often given as reason to drink a little bit of alcohol. It's a very familiar verse. It says, use a little wine for your stomach's sake. It's what Paul said to Timothy. And we aren't told what kind of wine this is, since the Greek word there again is oinos. It's used here, and it could be either kind of wine. But since it's phrased more in a positive way, it was good for, for Timothy, the way Paul was phrasing it. And we know from other instructions from Paul, also in 1 Timothy and in Titus, that leaders were not to drink wine. It was very clear that they were not to drink wine. And Timothy certainly was a leader. It doesn't make sense that Paul would be telling him to drink wine sometime, but on the other hand, not to drink wine, as far as alcohol is I think that we can conclude easier that this wine that Paul was recommending to Timothy was some type of a sweet grape juice rather than an alcoholic type. Because we do know that grape juice in and of itself has many health benefits according to health practitioners around the world, um, including the Mayo Clinic. They, I've read where they talk about how grape juice is good for you. On the other hand, though, in, in looking at this verse, I do realize that there's many helpful medicines that use alcohol as a base or as a carrier, and alcohol is helpful. There, so there kind of becomes a fine line of what is acceptable, especially when it's used specifically as a treatment for an illness or in a sickness. But even if Paul is here referring to an alcoholic drink for Timothy, at the most, I think its purpose was to be used only for sickness and not a person's will and pleasure, since that, I think that would contradict what other scriptures and their warnings about alcohol says. So I would encourage you to, if you do decide to use it for an illness or sickness, to be prayerful about it and uh, consider what God wants you to do if you do choose to use it for that. So another scripture that can be confusing is in 1 Timothy 3, verses 3 and 8, and Titus 1, 7, where it says that the requirements for a deacon is that they be not given to much wine. Some would say that that gives us an allowance to drink a little bit of wine. So I'd like to... Uh, use several analogies now to help us in our thinking process. If you were told not to drive 80 miles an hour through a 20 mile per hour school zone, would it now be acceptable for you to drive a little slower, maybe at 40 miles an hour? Likewise, to tell someone not to drink too much wine, it's not necessarily an endorsement for you to drink up to the point that you feel most drunk and then stop. If we use that mentality of reasoning, then when it says in Ecclesiastes 7.17, 
do not be overly wicked. Does that mean that you can be moderately wicked? Or in Proverbs 23, 22, is not your mother when she is old? Does that mean that you can despise her until she reaches retirement age? Proverbs 22, 22 says, do not rob the poor. Does that mean that you can rob the rich and the middle class, but like Robin Hood did? I think you get the idea, and I think we know what not given to much wine means, but it's, it's only when we're looking for the loopholes that these verses be coming out. So I would encourage you to, to look at these types of scriptures through the lens of the intent of the whole Bible. Because the leaders, the leaders have already previously been admonished clearly to not drink wine. So why would it not be okay for a deacon who is an ordained leader to be able to drink a little bit? There's probably more scriptures that we could look at, but the question for our day and age is, how should we respond? If you look at it purely from a secular view, even though you'll find many documents that record how alcohol damages the body when we consume at excess, and, and you'll be able to find that if you look in the secular world, you'll be able to find how, that, how alcohol will damage your body. Our bodies, they're not ours to be done with as we please, but they are temples of the living God, according to 1 Corinthians 3.16. So when we damage this body with alcohol, we're not only are destroying it, but we're destroying God's temple. At the very least, alcohol will, it inhibits our ability to think properly, even though we might not realize it. So where does words like self-control, temperance, sober, sound mind come into the picture of drinking a little bit of alcohol? Because clearly, a little bit does impair your mind. Those words, self-control, temperance, soberness, sound mind, they also play a part in our lives as spirit-like Christians because when we as Christians don't exhibit these attributes of the holy li of, of holy living, it can lead others who are weaker into bondage by them following our example. And like I said earlier, possibly our own children. If for no other reason, we have the responsibility, the responsibility to abstain for our brother's sake as 1 Corinthians 8 brings out. I'm sure there's much more that can be said, and maybe much more that will be said as we talk about it, but I'd like to leave you with a question referring back to the man trapped in quicksand. Which step, which step do you think was the step he took where he could no longer turn back?